Welcome to the Maximus Podcast with your hosts, Joe Sabula and Bobby Maximus. Today's episode brought to you by 10,000. Uh, 10,000 is the absolute best workout gear for men that you have ever worn. Uh, so check out their website, 10,000.cc. That's the words 10,000, T-E-N-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D.cc. Use the discount code Maximus15. Get yourself 15% off a gift from us to you. Also, make sure you check out Lalo.com, L-A-L-O.com for the absolute best in tactical boots, uh, workout shoes. Um, the Maximus Grinder is obviously our uh, our preferred workout shoe. It is basically indestructible and uh, will increase your strength by, I believe, 212%. Um, so check that one out. Use the discount code Maximus50 uh, for a limited time. That discount code will get you 50% off your order. Um, Without further ado, we are uh, happy to present uh, today's interview. This is uh, this will be done in two parts, so this will be part one, and we'll release part two shortly after uh, with Coach Tony Blauer, who is a, a longtime mentor of mine, someone that I've uh, I've deeply admired and had the, the great fortune to uh, to work with. Uh, we brought him on on the episode to discuss uh, really his life's work. Um, you know, fear, understanding fear, the management of fear, uh, how that translates into enhanced performance um, as an athlete, as a professional, as a decent human being all around. Uh, now, I will warn you: the first ten minutes or so of the interview, the audio is a little bit sketchy. Um, it's it's mostly intro stuff. I do think that it has value, uh, so I didn't want to cut it out. Um, but if it just drives you too nuts. Uh, uh, just just hang on tight for about 10 minutes or just skip ahead and the audio does clear up quite a bit at the about the 10 or 12 minute mark. Um, so feel free to skip ahead to that if that bothers you. We will also be releasing this one as a video so you can check out our YouTube channel for that. Um, so there you go. Without uh, any any other fanfare, we're going to jump right into it. So uh, here we go. Yay. We have a uh a guest that we've been waiting a long time to get on here, uh, Tony Blauer. Um, Tony, why don't you introduce yourself? For people that don't know who you are, uh, why don't you give us a little rundown? Yeah, so great to be here, Bobby Joe. And uh, who am I? What do I do? Why am I on the show? Uh, so I've been studying violence and fear for literally four years. Actually, probably my whole life, though I didn't realize I was doing that. Like a kid, as a competitive athlete, I... It was gymnastic, wrestling, competitive skiing. I love skiing, and I never enjoyed any sport. I I was always in the top, you know top five, ten in whatever I was competing in, uh, close to the top three. But I always had this like self sabotage thing go, just this fear as a young and I was very interested even as a young kid. I was like, why do I feel this way? So that's kind of like in my. Um, you know, my background, I just say that because, you know, I'm uh, turning 60 in May and and my whole life has been about trying to understand fear and how to uh, change my relationship with it. Over the years, because I fell in love with, with martial arts and self-defense, at, at uh, the age of 12, I was introduced to the need for self-defense after getting jumped by two guys, uh, you know, went home, wasn't hurt, but... You know, I said to my dad, I said, hey, two guys just jumped me after the baseball game, like when I was walking home. And I had no marks on me, right? So he said, what, what did they beat you up with a pillow? You know, and, uh, you know I was like, no, seriously, like, it was just crazy. And he said, and he just said, like, you know, it's 1972. He said, well, you got to learn martial arts. You got to learn self-defense. So there was one Taekwondo school open near me. 
and uh, I went and I started studying. I fell in love with it. It was just insane. I, I seven days a week. I would I had a Mackie War under my bed for people who don't know what that is. You guys do. You know, it's just like a, like a like a, a canvas bag filled with beans. And before I would even get out of bed to, to go to the bathroom, brush my teeth, I just slide it out. I just smash. I wanted to have big knuckles like Joe Lewis, and just obsessed with this shit. And and I uh, I started. I always loved coaching. I was just natural at it. I, I taught tennis. I taught skiing. I was, I was I was so into skiing. Like literally, the the uh, ski hill that we heard, uh, you know, uh, had a country house near Mont Gabriel. It had a special provision in their insurance to allow me to teach because I was only 15 years old. I was teaching adults. And the why I'm telling this is because there's some background uh, to this. And in, in that, as a, a um, as a competitive skier, people would like I would hear the adult whispering, "Wow, Tony keeps uh, going on this trajectory. Maybe he'll be in the Olympics. Maybe he'll represent Canada." And I would always hear that. But in my mind, there was part of me that was like, "Wow, that's so cool!" And a part of me going, "Holy fuck! Like, am, am I that good? What? Like, really?" And so I remember this one race, and, and Joe, I know you've heard the story yeah. before. I'm in one race, Mont Blanc, above the the start gate is above the tree line, and so there's there's literally no trees. The wind is howling, howling. Ice is there, and my coach comes up to me, fits four, and he's rubbing rubbing my my knees, keep warm. He says, "Hey, how do you feel, kid?" And I look at him, I go, "Great, coach." And I go, "Okay." He says, uh, "Remember that." Uh, uh, get 50, really icy, take that really high and come around there. You make up time here. I go, I got it, I got it. And I take it off, do everything. Three gates from the bottom, I think I catch a tip. And I and I wipe out, and I, I actually fall through the finish line, but I disqualify because I missed the gate. One of the times on the course comes up to me after he says, Man, kid, too bad you, you uh, wiped there because when you passed me halfway down the course, you were almost a second ahead of the guy that only won the race. Now, second in a giant slow race is like a mile in a car race. But what's the whole point of this? The point of this is. I was that good, but I never won a race ever in years of skiing. I was always like first pick on you know training and practice. Never won a race, and I thought this years later when I started you know uh, coaching people and stuff at fans and, and and noticed that people what they thought they were going to do what ended up happening. We did scenarios was almost always really different. And one day I flashed back to this. I don't know why, but just like that deep introspection. I flashed back to this this moment on the hill with my coach in this very important race, and I thought. What if my coach at 15 minutes earlier asked me the same question, Bobby? What if he said, hey, kid, how do you feel? And I would lie to him like I did a decade ago. Great coach. What if he would have put his arm around me like as a mentor and said, hey, have you noticed that you never finish race? Now, understand the self-sabotage. Some people self-sabotage. They don't show up, mm-hmm. right? Guy comes into your gyms. Both of you are great trainers. They come in. Yeah, I want to do this. I want to do this. He's a big talker. Maybe he's for three months and then doesn't show up because he realizes this is too hard. I would show up. I did all the work. I went, I, so I didn't like, oh, the race is today? I thought it was tomorrow. I didn't like, it wasn't that. My sabotage was I skied so hard that I would always ski off the course or catch a tip. So almost like a guy that gets in the ring, but he can't, he can't maintain his composure to deploy a strategy. He's fucking going too hard, right? His sphere is not being channeled in the right way. And so imagine if my coach, and this just came to me, and now this is something that's part of our No Fear Seminar, uh, Imagine if he put his arm around me and said, hey, you know, how do you feel, kid? Great coach. I would have lied the same. It's 15 minutes before the race. And he says, have you noticed that you never finish a race? I'd have looked at him and went, 
I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, like always sort of rub. Like, I would have been crying and tears froze like dumb and dumber. They would have froze. <laughs> and but imagine if he had said, "Listen, what are you thinking? What is going on? I don't know." Like I, I the thing that that if he had talked to me and said, "Don't try to win today. Don't do this for your parents. Just make it down the snowplow down the hill. Mm-hmm. Get over there. Just let's just show yourself you could finish this." And, and the thought that, that crossed my mind, and it led into a whole bunch of research on the psychology, science and psychology of coaching, where I created a, a whole, you know, when I work with coaches now, I go, you're a trainer. You're not a coach. There's a technician, trained coach, where there was a progression that I developed. Technician understands the mechanics. A trainer understands the reps you need to develop, you know, these are the protocols to develop, you know, stamina, strength, endurance, aerobic capacity, whatever. But the coach, and there's very few of them, can read graphic or their kid or their spouse or their partner. The coach is the person who is only about inspiring performance. Now the coach can and should know all of the other components, but what I needed that day in my career was a ski coach. What I had was a ski trainer. Yeah. Hey, watch out for gate 50. Right? Watch out for the ice or your ski sharp, right? Whatever the hell it was. And had, cause if he had asked me what's going on, I'd have said, and this is the line that is that really has impact our seminars. If I'm so good, why am I so scared? Nobody really has created this. Sort of like like you guys, especially you, Bobby. You know, coming coming from uh, law enforcement, professional fighter. I worked with so many pro fighters, and there's this like, in the type A personality. We don't want to talk about fear. We don't talk about being scared. Right, and it's and it's a huge thing because had I been able to say to coach, you know, like I, I'm so scared, man. He, if he had been able to say, oh, dude, that's just you know your physiological response to anticipation of uh, you know potential danger, blah, 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 you know, just giving me something else to think about as opposed to like sitting and going, okay, it's like below zero, it's windy, why am I sweating? That makes no sense. Because most people attribute or their their connection to the physiological impacts of fear television, auditory exclusion, uh, you know, uh, vertical breathing, as lack of preparedness. There's something wrong. I've done this with, with pops, with military, where they don't, they're don't they not even trained properly in this. I've, I had, in, in one of our, our tactical uh, uh, games, I had a SWAT cop come up to me after a shooting that he had, and he said, man, I was in this gunfight, and, like, all of a sudden, I couldn't even hear the rounds go off. All I could hear was my breathing. And he's like, look at me, and I go, isn't that wonderful sound? Like, it would be really bad if you couldn't hear yourself breathing. That would be bad. But that's just called auditory exclusion, dude. When when shit hits the van, you're, you're, the human weapon system is fucking amazing stuff. And it closes down distractions. You know about stuff. But a lot of people don't. Even people we assume do. Anyways. I think I think that my question for you is that is that the big assumption everybody has. Navy SEALs are never actually afraid. And if I'm afraid, then clearly I'm not where I should be. Like, I'm in the wrong environment. It's it, yeah, that's a great question. What's interesting is uh, I don't know if you guys know Mike Ritland from the Mike Drop podcast, uh, and uh, this is a challenge. You. His podcasts are all two, three, four hours long, so I don't know how we're going, but uh, you know I don't think you guys have the stamina. But the, um, but his stuff is like is literally long form, like that long. And he's a Navy SEAL, and I went on a show and we, we dug really deep into fear, and he said. Hey, we were on missions. We were stacked outside the house, and we knew every single male in that house had a gun, and they were going to try and kill us, and we were going to go in and out. Anyone who tells you they weren't afraid is lying. And but we trusted our training, we tr- uh, trusted our tactics, and most importantly, we, we we trusted our teammates, right? So 
you know, uh, I, I want to share this because it like it really dovetails well. Um, I never really answered your question, Bobby, but people figure it out if they find this interesting. <laughs> they've already, they've already like, clicked on their scrolling Instagram going, fuck this shit. But if they're still listening, you know, for the last 43 years, I've been teaching real world self-defense to uh, 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 everyday citizens, to military law enforcement, emergency services, blah, 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 to one guy. So I'm down... Uh, uh, a decade or so, maybe even longer now. So I'm down. I'm down at Fort Bragg, and uh, I go to meet a couple of the guys that I work with from this unit. It was really Saturday. We did a coffee shop, and one of the guys says, "Hey, uh, you want to go jumping?" And I'm like, uh, "You mean like up and down?" He goes, "No, no, you know what I mean. That's skydiving." <laughs> I said, no, I, "I'm I'm cool, dude. Uh, nah, no interest in jumping out of an airplane today." He goes, oh, I thought you were Mr. Like, fear management. I said, yeah, I'm managing my fear by not jumping out of an airplane. <laughs> so, you know, he giggles. And he's with a guy who also laughs. But he's got, like, a nervous laugh, not the same laugh as the guy that asked him. And I said to him, I said, you know, I study fear and, and fear management. And I interview uh, fighters, victims of violence. Um, and, uh, uh, sorry, this, my house is going, we're, I don't know if you know, there's this pandemic and there's this quarantine thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, like, everyone's home making noise. But you're, you're actually, sorry, you guys are actually, though, because we don't have this in Utah yet, but I think it's coming. Right. You're actually on, on some kind of state for yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. California, like, you guys have been ordered, like, not allowed to leave your house unless it's an absolute emergency. Parks, malls. It's, it's interesting. Uh, the, uh, you know, when they announced that, they always leave the fine print out. But, you know, it was like, and this is an interesting thing. We're, you know, this week I've been doing a lot of shows, interviewing, uh, you know, on, on fear and fear management, stuff like that. And, uh, and people think that because I, like, spent 40 years studying fear and violence and put together this new fear program, and, and it's KNRW fear, right? Get over your changes your fear and learning to use fear as a fuel, um, that, the, that I somehow don't have fear. And so when, like yesterday, when I got messaged, hey, California's on lockdown, I got a fear spike. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, okay, like, do we have enough food? Do I have enough ammo? Do I, was the zombie upon? Like, your brain just starts running this fucking movie. It's unsolicited. It just starts. And if you're watching the movie in your mind, there's no fucking way that you can't have your physiology change, Right. But you need to cultivate, and this is the message of television, we need to use that movement. I'd say fear is a cue and fear is a clue. When you feel the butterflies, the fear spike, your vertical breathing changes, your starts, those are all clues that you're running a movie in your mind that is a fucking horror film that you don't want to be the star of because you're victim number one. It's changing that. So what I try to do is inspire people to cultivate self-awareness to that and recognize that. That, and this is why we did the play on words. It's not, not no fear and no fear. It's no fear. Get to no fear. Because when you change it and you look at it, you change its negative hold on you. You realize, oh, shit, I need to learn something about myself here or about this situation. So even I, at decades after, and Joe, you know this, like I developed this, this concept back in the late 80s with the whole cycle of behavior and the fear loop. Mm-hmm. And um, so even though after decades and decades of teaching it and using it and I still had a fear spike last night and I sat there immediately. Okay, dude, stop, breathe, focus. You're in the fear loop. What are you thinking? And when you do that, you move from this emotional, oh, fuck, oh, fuck mindset to this more analytical strategic. 
And the big takeaway here is that there are lots of scenarios in life that you can't be cavalier about the risk and the danger, and but you still need to perform with fear. I'll give you, you guys both know what Murph is, right? Yeah. Work at right. So so Murph, if done as prescribed, is supposed to be done with a weight vest on. And I ask people when I'm, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners into uh, you know fitness and stuff like that know what, what the, 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 the legendary Murph workout is. And I ask people in classes, if I'm working with a group of, of athletes, how many of you have done Murph? Every one of them. How many of you have done it with a vest? Half the group. How many of you have done it without a vest? Everyone. What do you think is harder? Doing the mile runs, the push-ups, the pull-ups, the squats with 22 pounds extra weight? Or, and they go, well, obviously with the vest, is way harder. Correct, it is. How many of you were in the military or law enforcement? Then it's usually two or three in the class. I go, but you put a vest on. If you weren't in the military and law enforcement, you don't know how to fit a vest properly, I guarantee that you put your 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 weight vest on too tight the first time you did it. And you took your pre-MERF picture, hey, pre-MERF picture, and you had it on tight because you want to look cool. And then when you started running, if the vest is too tight, how is that going to impact your breathing, your natural breathing, your stride? It's going to start to suffocate you, like 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 grappling with somebody who knows how to relax, right? Remember, remember when we first first started doing jujitsu, and some little hundred and forty pound fuckers on you, and he weighs like three hundred pounds in your mind. You're like, <laughs> how does this guy feel so heavy, right? So so the idea here is, I go. So now you're running. You're into your first like four hundred meters on this mile run with a vest that's too tight, and your breathing is being interrupted. So when your breathing is interrupted, that starts to fuck with your head. What do you do? You open up your vest quickly. It affects your stride. People are moving ahead of you. Your ego gets involved, and now you 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 tighten the vest, but you make it you make it way too loose because you swing the pendulum the other way. You guys tracking this? Now yeah. it's too loose, and a too loose vest does what? fucking bounces up in your throat. So now you got to grab like the collar and run, but you can't run efficiently with your hands holding down a vest. Eventually you stop and you put the vest on properly. Your intuition, your instincts and your intelligence comes together and you go, this is how I need to wear my vest. That whole fucking story is a metaphor for fear. There are, 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 there are events in life where you need the metaphoric fear vest. And if you don't wear your fear properly, it'll suffocate you or strangle you. And you, but there are times you just gotta accept it. I call that the duress path, where we gotta do this. I'm uncomfortable, it's scary. If I don't control my thoughts, I can pop back to the fear loop. If I control my thoughts, I will get through this. And it's how we teach people to keep moving. Yeah, take us back to the Fort Bragg story now. Okay, so there I am, coffee shop, guy says, uh, he says, you want to go jumping? I go, you know, up and down. He goes, no, it's skydiving. I go, ha, 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 yeah, no. He teases me. Oh, I thought you are Mr. Fear Management. I go, yeah, I am managing my fear by not jumping out of the airplane. He goes, he laughs. Good one, Tony. The other guy beside him laughs, but I can read body language. You guys know, know this. Joe, you know this from my seminar, but probably you know this from being a cop. Body language is around 60% of communication, right? So you knew walking up to people if they were going to run when you're about to rest them, if they were going to fight, you like you knew in advance. That intuition's going, okay, I can read this. He doesn't have to say shit. So I can tell from looking at these other guys, he's a little bit nervous. So I say to the guy who asked me, I go, let me ask you a question because I study fear. And uh, he goes, sure. I said, are you, you don't have any fear when you go skydiving? 
he goes, uh, he goes, no, man, I fucking love it. I mean, I go as often as I can. I got over 600 jumps. And uh, I go, that's crazy. I said, so you have no fear? He goes, no. I look over at his buddy, who's like looking to see where this is going. And I said, hey, you're going to go jumping later? I'm not going to go with you, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to come and watch you. And I'd also like to like repack your shoot for you. And just so you know, just so you fucking know, I'm really, I don't even know how to fold a t-shirt. My wife like, goes, like, give me that t-shirt, I'll fold it. So, but let me pack your shoot for you. And he looks at me, he goes, you're not coming anywhere near my shoot. And I went, did I just introduce some fear to you? In other words, we forget that we're not born with K and RW fear and NO fear. We're born and if we have the right mentor, the right guardian, the right parent, the right coach, we learn how to manage it. And that a special operations guy, uh, a police officer, somebody who takes their career like you did, Bobby, you know, that takes that takes you like from, you know, oh, I think I'm going to compete. Right. And it wasn't you didn't just go from I'm going to fight to, you know, fighting in the UFC. There's a progression. There's adaptation there. There's stress inoculation and people need to understand that that's what happens. But here's the interesting thing. And this is the significant point about the story is the guy beside him was qualified, part of the same unit, but I could tell he didn't like skydiving. So I could look at him and go, you like skydiving? He goes, not really, right? But you do it and you're good at it, right? And here's what I wanna share with your listeners. If you decide to take skydiving lessons, do you wanna take one from an adrenaline junkie who's 24 years old, who's sponsored by some adrenaline company, who's got a death wish, who's just like he lives for adrenaline? Or do you want to take it from a 55-year-old guy who's been skydiving since he's 20? In other words, I don't learn skydiving from someone who doesn't care whether they live or die and just fucking loves it because of the adrenaline. I want to take skydiving lessons from somebody who doesn't want to die. Right. right? right. And I'm, I'm, I'm amplifying this to make it like really cartoony but when people come and train with me and my company and we train a lot of people who are really skilled i go you already know how to fight i'm going to teach you how to not fight morally ethically legally like there needs to be an opera a platform for ethical self-defense and that is the choose safety uh, mantra of ours is like mm-hmm. I, I don't need to be in a violent encounter unless i'm the protector everything else is just ego and douchebaggery just fucking, I just want to get home and see my family. I want to, I want to, you know, work hard. In my case, make people safer. And and the only people that need to move towards the danger are, are emergency services, first responders, military, law enforcement. Anyways. So I, I actually have a question, Tony, about when you were 15 that's been playing in my mind. Yes, sir. Um, you were talking about your coach putting his arm around you, talking to you, like, you know, trying to help you. Um, this is something that I ask myself a lot because I, I, I was a little hard-headed when I was younger. Do you think at 15 you would have listened? Like if you would have had a coach that said the right words, do you think you would have been capable at that age of listening? Or it's just yeah, something that's, that's retrospect. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, and, and that's a great question. And, and like some of the stuff that I've learned – in the last few years, you know, two years ago, I had a neck injury that triggered Bell's palsy and, and paralyzed the whole side of my face. It's still healing, uh, but it, 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 it impacted and aggravated some stenosis. I haven't worked out in two years. All I can do is walk and shadow box. And as a lifelong athlete, I went in, in the fear loop immediately. And it changed my perspective and how I communicate 
how I run my company, how I, how I, how I just look at people. So much so that I'm communicating with my kids who are, who are 18, 22, 28. And then this is to, to go back to your question, Bobby, I'm sending them messages, hoping to plant seeds. And part of my message is the message. And then the, I know you're probably not saving this like I told you to and tagging it somewhere. And you're probably thinking, oh, fuck, dad, 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 stop telling me this shit. Right. And I go like, but I wish I wish somebody was sharing what I understand now to me when I was 20. And I hope that I would have been mature enough and receptive enough to consider it, to weigh and consider it. Although, to your point, you know, I, like I remember, you know, sitting at a table, getting in a fight with 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 my father and my sister and, you know, in, in somebody at the table going, you know, why are you so angry all the time? And I'm like, I'm not fucking angry. Like, like you know, so. But but you said something that's key, and that's the difference between a technician, trainer, and a coach. When you're upset, when either one of you have been upset, and some person said to you, hey, you need to calm down, how well did that go over? You just need to yeah. relax, Joe, right? Yeah. So yeah. No. <laughs> the only person that can tell me to relax is a massage therapist or a chiropractor, right? Everyone else is like, what did you fucking say? And so, so the, the, the idea here, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a deeper question than, than maybe uh, you anticipated, Bobby, because a lot of it is, is phrasing, syntax, tone, understanding the, the social science of communicating, that of creating uh, rapport. We call this, Joe, you know this from, our, from the training you've done, the choice speech. How do you inspire conscience and account- accountability? How do you, so if I had said to you as a, like, a, you know, you're 15 and you're, you're stubborn and, and I'd said, dude, you want to win or you don't, you better listen to me. Like that's how, that's how most of us were either way over on the other side of the pendulum that goes, you know, wherever, you know, the society where everyone gets a medal, you're doing great. You're going to be fine. You're going to win one day. Right. And, but we're not peeling the onion to find out what the exact fear is. Right. So a lot of it is, you know, we can't. As coaches, and I say this respectfully, that most coaches are trainers. Mm-hmm. They don't understand enough about the neuroscience of fear and, and, and self-awareness to cultivate that. I'll give you a real-life example. Years ago, this is years before MMA, I was coaching a fighter who was, uh, his name was Sean, and he was fighting for the uh, Canadian title in kickboxing, amateur kickboxing, which... Uh, amateur fights were three rounds. The title fights were four rounds, right? And I'm in the uh, changing room down in uh, uh, the uh, Coliseum back when I lived up in Montreal, Canada. And we're there. And I'm kind of like looking like this is old school. They were like old school boxing here. Like freaking Sugar Ray Robinson fought there. Oh, my God. Like I'm a boxing historian. I'm like, wow. Like you're in the, the like, you know, like Rocky one, you know, the, the bowels mm-hmm. of the auditorium. And uh, the um, the uh, one, one of the officials comes in, stamps the, the the wraps, says, "You guys, 15 minutes." My guy Sean, he's he's shadow boxing, he's warming up, and I'm like, I'm more nervous than he is. Like my heart is pounding, I'm sweating, but I don't tell him that, right? And I'm hoping that uh, he can't pick up on it. And I look at him, I go, "Hey, Sean." He goes, uh, "He goes, yes, coach." I go, "How do you feel?" He goes, "I'm good, man. I'm 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 nervous, but I'm good." And I look at him, I go, Sean, you're supposed to be nervous. You're about to get in a fight. 
the guy's going to try and kick you and punch you in the face. And you're going to do the same thing to him, right? He goes, yes, coach. I go, so if you told me you weren't nervous before a fight, I think there's maybe something wrong with you. I'm glad you're nervous. Use it. Great coach. He goes back to me. He's shadow boxing. And I sit there. And for all intents and purposes, if I were a good actor and that was well lit, that'd be a cool scene in, in one of the outtakes that didn't make it into Rocky, right? You're supposed mm-hmm. to be nervous. You're getting into a fight. But I'm sitting there, Bobby, and I keep referring to you because Joe's heard all these stories. Uh, uh, <laughs> Multiple times. <laughs> uh, and I'm sitting there on the bench talking to, the, to one of my, one of my uh, uh, athletes who's going to uh, co- uh, uh, work with me in the corner. And something starts to nag me. And this is one thing that I've trusted and it's built the whole No Fear program that, that we teach uh, online and live now. Not so much live, but like virtual live is that you it's what we call the three eyes instincts intuition and intelligence trust your instincts listen to your intuition and if you blend that you're probably going to come up with something intelligent i mean how many times in our lives you you two and people listening to the show did something happen and you go motherfucker i knew that was going to happen you had had this like premonition well that premonition was your intuition saying hey motherfucker slow down and think about this Right. And so we need to that self-awareness leads to critical thinking. And then we go, should I go left? Should I go right? Anyway, so here I am. I'm sitting on the bench. I'm looking at Sean Shadowbox. A couple minutes have gone by and my body is nagging at me. My intuition's nagging at me. And I and I start introspecting and I realize what I'm doing. I had given him a cool answer but I didn't ask him to self-identify what he was nervous about because it could have been, hey coach, I, I, I hurt my ribs last week, I didn't want to tell you. Uh, I got a groin pull, I'm not sure I can get my, my eight kick minimum in and uh, shit, I don't want to lose points. My girlfriend, like what are the things you could be afraid of? My parents are at ringside, I, I didn't sleep for two nights, I'm really thinking like, like I'm thinking all these things like are going through my mind quickly. And I realize this is the difference between being a good trainer and a good coach. A good trainer says, remember we worked in the gym, right? He's a southpaw. Keep your foot on the outside. Okay. Remember, get your hand like, and you're giving him like training tips. The coach knows how to get in your head because all the coach is about by my definition, right? Technician is, hey, make a good fit. You sprained your, your wrist there on that last punch. Let me remind you how to make a fist, right? The, the trainer is, you're going to do these punches to develop this, you know, even though muscle memory doesn't exist, but this neuromuscular communication, right? How to slip, how to bob, how to, how to throw a combination. The coach is going, huh, okay, what's going on? What are you thinking? Here's what we need to do. Do you understand, right? He's in there, and that changes for every athlete potentially new, at a nuanced level. So I turn to Sean. I go, Sean. He goes, yes, coach. I go, I need to apologize to you. He goes, Why? I go, that answer I gave you, that was like a fortune cookie answer, right? Pop it open. You know, that's custom out of the difference between the hero and the coward or what they do with their, their fear. They both feel it. He goes, no, man, that really relaxed me. I go, yeah, didn't relax me, Sean. What exactly are you afraid of? He goes, what? I said, what exactly are you afraid of? And he looks at me. I said, you said you were nervous. What were you nervous about? He goes, it's stupid. It's nothing. I'm good. Listen to this. If I hadn't started to peel the onion, I go, I go, uh, I go, what were you nervous about? He says, it's stupid. I go, no, tell me. He goes, it's this dumb thought. I mean, I fought, I've, I've sparred for 10 rounds. 
I've got the gas. I'm in good shape. But I keep thinking I've never done a four round fight. This is my fourth round, my first four round fight. And it's ridiculous because if I've done 10 here, I should be able to do four here, but I've never done four actually in a real fight. And I know right away, like sparring on home turf or going to a friend's gym is not the same as actually fighting with, you know, six ounce gloves or whatever they were wearing or 14 or whatever. And, and actually with somebody actually trying to like Mike Tyson's old book, you know, Mean Intentions. Um, so I looked at him and I said, Sean, and this is what I said to him. I said, Sean, you're concerned if you can do four rounds? He goes, yeah. I said, can you do two rounds? He's like, well, yeah, of course. I looked at him, I said, so just do two rounds twice. And he looks at me and he smiles and his whole physiology changed. He's like, fuck, I can do that. And he starts shadow boxing again. Bobby, in you know, in amateur kickboxing, 16 foot ring, foot on each side, so you're 14 feet. You know, you can hear the other corner. You're only 14 feet away. At the end of the second round, I look at Sean, squirt some water in his mouth, and I go, can you do two rounds? He's like, fuck yes, right? We tell people, don't let the math beat you. Don't let the math beat you. You know, you don't, I don't want to run a mile today. Well, can you run 400 meters? Yeah, so just do that four times, motherfucker, go, right? Like, make, break it down into smaller parts. So after the second round, I go, hey, can you do two rounds? He goes, yeah. Just then, like, we were in, like, the worst B you know, movie ever, we could hear the other fighter say, hey, coach, what round is it? Because, yeah, going into third round. Like, and it was so amazing because it was like, I gave my guy something. He ended up winning the title that fight uh, that, that night. But it was, I really believe, like my Murph metaphor with the weight vest, that had he, had I not extracted what that was, that that extra nervousness impacts his cortisol his thinking his breathing who knows what what the the you know the, that microscopic impact has on total confidence does he hold back because he's worried about his reserve that he does in fact miss his a count does he fight more defensively because he's worried about his stamina and in this case here we gave him a simple model that he could adapt to but this is all what i mean by by by, by the neuroscience and the neural circuitry of fear and being able to coach people through that there's a whole system, and, and Joe, you've been exposed to it, of course. But and Bobby, one day, you know, we'll get we'll get together, and I'll I'll show it to you. It's a freaking map. It's like an algorithm. So I don't care if you're in business, an entrepreneur, a fighter. You drop shit in there, and then you start asking questions, and it helps you spit out answers that are relevant to you at this point in your life. At this point in your life, I can't. I, mean, I uh, I'm assuming you probably have a lot of uh, high level athletes and even coaches that listen to your show. Right. And so I can't emphasize enough that, you know, one day I'll write a book, but the working title for the book is cheering is in coaching. Right. And so there's a lot of coaches. Come on, you can do it. But I know you're tired. Go. And it's like, no, you fucking lift the weights. I'm too tired now. Right. Just cheering isn't actually tapping into the individual's potential. My two cents. No, it's interesting you say that because I, I think that, um, I love to hear the difference between a technician, a trainer, and a coach. I've actually never heard that before broken down like that. It's interesting to me because I've worked with a lot of coaches per se. Right. You know, a lot of wrestling coaches, a lot of fight teams, but there's actually only a few people I would have ever considered a coach, if that makes sense. Exactly. Of course you it makes sense. I mean? in, in fact, I got a funny story for you. One of my best coaches ever, 
His name is Fran Clayton. Uh, he's from the University of Lakehead, Ontario. And technically not the greatest wrestler on the planet at all. In fact, probably technically the, the worst, you know, coach I had in, in terms of technique. Right. But he was really smart at tactics and, and the locking potential. Yep. And I have a story where I was in the national championship and uh, it was the semifinals. And the backstory to this is when I went to Lakehead University, he sat me down and had a talk with me. And he said, I know all your bullshit. You like to do it your way. You like to do this and this and this. It's not going to fucking happen anymore. If you want to wrestle on this team, you're going to do it my way. You're not going to do your normal bullshit. Here's the plan for the year. And it was probably the first time in my life I was actually able to stick to that and stay on track. So I'm on track. I'm on track. I'm on track. We get to the semifinals and the national championship, and I'm losing 8 nothing. We go back to the corner because there was a little 30-second break. And he takes his glasses and he pulls them down on his nose and he looks at me like over his glasses. He goes, do it your fucking way. I go, what? He goes, go fucking win. And I'm like, what, what are you? I don't understand. What do you mean? Like I'm following the plan. He goes, no more fucking plan. Go out and do all the fucking shit I hate. Huh. I, I, fuck, okay. I ended up losing eight to seven. But that moment taught me that like it, it was it was an interesting thing from a coaching perspective. It's something I've carried with me because he was able to recognize to just switch everything up. Right. And that call, if that makes sense. And really? he knew that's what I needed at that point because I wasn't confident. I was worried. I was nervous. I didn't think he could work. Um, but had the intuition to just kind of say, go do your thing. You know what I mean? Which was yeah. like, less of instincts. I love that. But let me ask you this. Had he said, don't do your thing, my thing, what, what would the score have been, do you think? Oh, fuck. 20 to nothing. Right. I would have just kept losing worse and worse and worse. Yeah. So, so you know, what's super interesting there is uh, you guys know, of course, who Maurice Smith is, right? Yep. And, and so I, I asked Maurice uh, a question years ago, years ago, because anytime I'm around, around military, law enforcement, victim violence, like I interview them, because what I'm looking at, I recognize that, that, that there is no way that I could get into thousands of confrontations, do an after action report, dissect them, plug them into some algorithm and go, oh, look at the thread that connects it all. But what I discovered over 40 years of studying violence, that what a tier one operator is thinking in a holy shit moment is the same as a soccer mom in a holy shit moment, that at a physiological, psychological level, there's a moment where there's an intersection. A lot of people might disagree with that because they, they forget about what I alluded to earlier with the skydiving story is the operator forgets about the adaptation that the, the 10 years or 20 years, and they don't recognize like that moment, the, the switch from, oh shit to, you know, okay, here we go. Um, and, and sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the speed that the stimulus is introduced quickly at. But back to this, the Maurice Smith story, so epic. So I, I look at him and I've been, and, and you guys both know this, but especially you, Bobby, you've been in, in, in uh, locker rooms as a coach, as an assistant, or as a fighter. And, you know, unless you're, uh, uh, you know, a megastar, you're sharing a locker room with, with multiple other fighters who are all coming in at different stages in their career. And one guy's walking around calm, doing his box breathing, and another guy's like standing in front of a locker bank, 
banging his head against the locker. The guy's punching his fist. You got a big, I don't know if you guys are going to release the video, but he's got a big grin on his face right now because he's flashing back to this shit. Uh, there's somebody else sitting on a bench and his leg is pumping the ground 100 miles an hour. That's just adrenaline flying. Everyone has their own pre-fight ritual slash condition based on where they are uh, in their journey to become a fighter. This goes for entrepreneurs, business, gym owners, whoever you are. So we've all been in, in that where we see these things. And I want you know coaches listening to this is you can't, and this, is, this goes back to the, the story you just told about your coach from Canada where he, in a moment of, of intuition and instinct, knew the intelligent thing to do was to release you and let you go. And that became that huge victory for you, even though you lost, because you went, oh my shit, I do have talent, I do have skill, I need to find a way to train and, and learn these sports and these movements, but I need to stay true to my personality in how I'm gonna approach violence or, or combat sports. And uh, so I'm in the room with Maurice, and I go, Maurice, you know, like I uh, like to interview, I interview like all fighters. So I've got a question for you. Do you feel fear before your fight? And he looks at me, he says, uh, he says, let me ask you a question. I'm like, okay, I thought I was interviewing him, but okay, right? He goes, do you have a job? And I said, yes, I do. He said, are you afraid to go to work? I go, no, I'm not. He goes, me either. And I share that story because like, like that's how we felt about getting into a fight and going to work. And I, when I tell that, when I'm coaching other fighters and I tell them that story, I can see them like, you know, their posture changes. They're like, fuck, that's cool. I go, but if I told you that Maurice's soundtrack, we're going to mirror him and you're going to become a UFC champ and a K1 champ and a Thai boxing champ, but you got to listen to his soundtrack. And and no, no, turn off Metallica. You got to listen to R&B. And, and you got to lie down on the massage table and meditate and just, you know, do your, your breathing. You can't jump around anymore. And shut. If I change a fighter's ritual too soon, how much do I mess with, and this goes back to what happened to you. The coach needs to go, this guy right now at this stage in his career needs to do this. He's got to get crazy. I can't, even though I know, oh, in 10 years, that's going to change if he keeps fighting. And so that's the big thing about coaching is is knowing what, so the great coach understands the technician trainer protocols, but the coach also knows how to get the most out of the athlete or your kid or your, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard, after, you know, winning five titles, probably, you know, arguably one of my favorite, favorite fighters of all time, decided to start coaching fighters, right? He, he bought a stable of fighters and started coaching them. In fact, you remember Sean O'Sullivan, Bobby? Yep. Right, Olympic medalist. Um, how how many listeners here? Put your hands up. I can't see your hands, but Bob, did you did you know that Sugar Ray used to coach fighters? Oh, no. How is it that you, as a fight a pro fighter, don't know that? How is it that when I told you the first time this story, Joe, that you didn't know Sugar Ray Leonard was a, was a coach? And the answer is because none of his fighters. If I say, do you, anyone know Greg Jackson or Angela Dundee? Yeah, we know who those names are because their fighters became champions. And I love Sugar Ray Leonard, and I hope he doesn't listen to your podcast because, because like this, this story is more about that Sugar Ray couldn't take his greatness and what he understood and pull that into or inject that into the people. And I mentioned uh, uh, Sean O'Sullivan because Sean O'Sullivan was one of the fighters he tried to help. And O'Sullivan lost and then got knocked out and then retired. So imagine 
you getting a call saying, hey, it's Sugar Leonard, I want to coach you, Bobby. But if he can't do what your Canadian coach did and let you be you, but teach you the parts, like augment your skill, but retain who you are, that personality, you know, it's like it'd be like someone coming in and saying to McGregor or, or um, uh, uh, Anderson Silva in his heyday or, or Ali. Hey, you can't fight with your hands down. Don't don't what is this leaning against the ropes doing that. That's their personality and having the coach go, listen, you do your road work, you're gonna hit pads, you're gonna you're gonna get in shape. We're gonna do the GPP, right? The stamina, the speed, the agility, and all that stuff. But as a coach, my job is to make sure that you become you when it's time to fight. All right. Thank you all for listening to part one of our interview with Coach Tony Blauer. I hope you got a lot out of that. I know we sure did. I want to remind everybody to to check out themaximuspodcast.com and get involved in our inner circle. Uh, This is a community of people who are, you know, obviously fans of the podcast, uh, but also very dedicated to to working out hard, to being the best version of themselves that they can be. Check it out. So again, go to themaximuspodcast.com, click join now, get involved. Uh, we've got unique content there just for for Inner Circle members. Uh, we've got a discussion board that is always lively, people talking about workouts, what's going on in their lives, um, c- kind of coaching each other back and forth, um, and uh, you know some exclusive content for people. So once again, that's themaximuspodcast.com. Uh, next episode will be part two of our interview with Coach Blower, so we'll be standing by for that. Uh, and uh, I guess we will see you next time.